Our scripture reading for this morning is Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we go to the word of the Lord this morning, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in dependence on you and we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would work through the scriptures. Please let us put aside all distractions Let me speak with accuracy, and I ask that Jesus would be exalted and that we would worship him together now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are continuing a series in Luke's Gospel. And if you have been with us and and paying attention to where we are, you know that today I am actually going to preach on the genealogy of Jesus. That is the list of names that shows Joseph's family in particular. And preaching on a list of names might seem absolutely crazy. In our culture, this is part of the Bible that does not seem very important. Or, For some who are very motivated and want to dig, they may do an enormous amount of work and identify a handful of names that are recognizable from the Old Testament and try to build some significance from the names that we know. But that's not what I am going to do this morning. I I want to ask and answer the question, why does Luke put the genealogy here? And what does it tell us about Jesus? And why do we need to know that? Why is this information important? And this morning, I want to say a word. 
in a way, about preaching in general. That, that this should be true really every week, but especially this week. As I preach, I have the, the unique opportunity and privilege to worship the Lord Jesus Christ by saying true and wonderful things about Him. It's a form of admiration. It's a form of saying, this is how incredible He is. And as I preach and proclaim that to you, that is one of the ways that I worship and as you listen to a message, and this should be true of every message, but my prayer would be, it would be especially true today. As I say things that are true about Jesus, you can worship Jesus during the sermon by saying in your hearts, or, or if you are inclined even out loud, yes, amen. That is who Jesus is. I agree. That is what the scriptures tell us. I love him and I want to worship him. And so you can make listening to a sermon an act of worship as you hear the truth of the scripture and recognize it as true and beautiful by saying things like yes and amen. A little later, as I have concluded this message... We will pray and we will sing a closing song and those are not disconnected from the message. Instead, if your heart has been moved by the truth of God's word, then your praise should be lifted with enthusiasm to Jesus. And as I pray and I ask God to do things based on what we've read in the scripture, you should say amen and yes, let that prayer be my prayer so that the whole church in unity, seeks God together because of what we've seen in the scripture. And this morning, we are going to see two things in Luke chapter 3. We are going to talk about how Jesus is the Son of God, and how Jesus is the Son of Man, both. Both of those things are vitally important for our salvation, and both of those things are evident from the scriptures that we're going to look at today. So beginning, we're going to look at Jesus, the Son of God, and I just want to look at a few verses. Luke chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 21 through 22, and I would encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3 says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The most important thing in these few verses is the declaration from God the Father to Jesus that says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now you might ask, how do do you get that? How do you know when you look at a couple of verses like that, what's important and what's less important? Well, the answer, some of you are going to be real excited, and some of you are not going to be excited at all. The answer has to do with grammar. Some of you may remember something called a subordinate clause. Some of you are like, yeah, I hated learning about that. I don't remember anything about it. When you look at a sentence, there is the main clause. You have a good verb that drives the action. And it is 
typically, at least grammatically, the thing that is emphasized. Subordinate clauses tell you when. They might tell you why. And it's not that they're unimportant. They are important, but they are giving you information about what the main thing is. And if you look at this verse, these couple of verses in Greek, all of the phrases that lead up to the Father speaking are giving you information that leads you to his declaration. It's telling you when it happened. It's telling you what was happening at the same time. But all of those are details that enrich your understanding of the main point, which is the Father declaring in no uncertain terms that Jesus is his beloved Son. Luke has already gone to great pains to describe how Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He did not have a human father. Luke says you may remember how the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, how the power of the Most High would overshadow her, so that the child to be born would be called the Son of the Most High. So Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Some during Jesus' adult ministry, tried to slander him and say that he had a human father and they didn't know who it was. But Jesus had no human father. There is no earthly man that could say, Jesus is my son. God is the father of Jesus. And that means that Jesus is fully God. 100% Absolutely and completely, which means you and I can worship him. There is no idolatry in worshiping Jesus Christ. You would never do that to any other person. But when we look at the person of Christ, we find again and again, people fall on their knees and worship him. And it's totally appropriate because he is the eternal son of God. And what I want to do is I want to, I'm going to grab just a handful of verses that demonstrate when, when God said to Jesus, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I want to just in a few minutes show what the New Testament teaches about that truth. And I'm just going to scratch the surface because we could be here for a long time if we tried to be exhaustive. So I just want to grab just a few that are so clear and there is more to be studied here. And so if you need to know more about this, some of you have friends and loved ones. Some of you may wonder, is Jesus really God? And you need to dig deeper. I want to encourage you, you can do that. I'm just going to show you just a few places where the scriptures are so clear about what it means that he is the son of God. Number one is found in John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 18. And what happens is in John's gospel, Jesus has a combative relationship with certain religious leaders. And in this particular context, they are so angry with him, they are ready to kill him. And this is what it says. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because he was even calling God his own father. And to make it perfectly clear what that means, the text says, By calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. If that were not true, the Jews would have been right to kill him. Blasphemy is a capital offense. And yet for Jesus, it was not. Because he was and is equal with the father. The scripture describes Jesus as saying, He is 
the eternal creator. John chapter 1 says, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now some falsely teach that Jesus is the first thing created and then everything else is created through him. That's not true. This is John 1 verse 3. Think about it very carefully. That last phrase says, Nothing was made that has been made without Jesus. If it was made, Jesus made it. That leaves no room for the possibility that something was made apart from Jesus. God the Father is the Father of Jesus... But he has been the father for all of eternity. There is never a time when Jesus did not exist. And that might seem strange. That might seem sort of confusing. So let me give you a verse that describes how Jesus is eternal. So this is from 1 John 5.20. 1 John 5.20. And John writes, We know that the Son of God has come And has given us understanding. And and I'm going to mention a verse from Hebrews that describes how God speaks through his son. John is saying the same thing. The son of God has come and has given us understanding. We would not know who God is apart from Jesus. And then he says, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, if you're just looking at that verse, you might say, how how are you sure that the he is talking about Jesus and not God the Father? Because in 1 John chapter 1, John begins his book by saying that the eternal life was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So now at the end of the book, he's talking about eternal life again, and he says, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is referred to as eternal again and again and again in Scripture. There's never a time when Jesus did not exist. So what does Scripture mean when it says that Jesus is God's Son? Well, I think one of the clearest verses that helps us understand that is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So let me read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So you're following me. with We're, we're pointing out Jesus is divine. Jesus is equal with God. That's what we looked at in John chapter 5. Then we're looking at Jesus is eternal. We saw that from 1 John 5.20. Now we're looking at what it means that Jesus is God's son. Now that we've talked about him being divine and eternal. So Hebrews 1.1 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3 describes what it means that Jesus is God's son. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you look at my son, And you look at pictures of me when I was about his age. You can see there is a physical resemblance. There's something about father-sonship where there is an image that is reflected. And this is because you and I, we are made in the image of God. And we are a little bit like him in how we pass that image on. But Jesus 
is not a little bit like the Father. Jesus, Hebrews says, is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that phrase, radiance of the glory, for just a second. What is radiance? Well, I can tell you, that light right there is radiant. That light right there is enormously bright, especially if you're looking at it. Radiance comes from that light, but you can't see the light from where you are. None of you can. You can only see the radiance of it as it casts light here. And in the same way, none of us can see God in himself. But Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. We see God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. As the Father's Son, He perfectly represents the image of God and shares with the divinity of the Father perfectly. He is 100% God. And a few weeks ago, you may remember, I talked about Jesus being the Son of God when the angel announced to Mary that the baby that would be born to her would be called the Son of the Most High. And in that message, we looked at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is enormously important for understanding who Jesus is. It describes what the Son of God will do as a king, how he will establish a righteous rule, how he will rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 is one of the first pictures in the Bible of what we, what we know about Jesus as God's Son. He is a king who is strong, and he's a king who is good. And John the Baptist has been preaching in Luke's gospel about how God's judgment is going to come on sinful people. So John the Baptist is urging God's people to repent so that they'll be ready for this king to come. So Psalm 2 sets, sets the king up as God's son in a special and particular way. And now they're anticipating if this king, this righteous king comes and, and the people are in a state of sin, the righteous king is going to destroy the people because they are unrighteous and he is righteous. So John is preaching to make people ready because the king is coming. And his expectation is that as the son of God, John has looked at Psalm 2, his expectation is that the son of God is going to come in judgment and in wrath. That's exactly what he says. That's why he preaches a, a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what we find is that when Jesus steps onto the stage as, as an adult, his first act in ministry is to represent God the Father in a way that John the Baptist did not expect. The most surprising thing about this text is that when John sees Jesus, the king is not coming as a judge. He is coming with a mass of sinners. And Jesus, the Son of God, is baptized along with sinners. That's the last thing that John would have expected. And I think in part, that's why the Father spoke. Because they were expecting a king to come in judgment. And the king came first, identifying with sinners. We need to remember for just a moment the significance of John's baptism. 
He is preparing the way for the Messiah, for the King. Verse 3 of chapter 3 here in Luke says that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Through John's people, excuse me, through John's preaching, people were understanding that God was going to judge them because they were living in sin and they repented in droves. They didn't blame their past. They didn't blame their parents. They didn't blame big business or banks. They didn't blame terrorists or government. And all of those things can screw people up. But instead of placing blame somewhere else, each of the people who heard John came to him and said, I am a sinner. The biggest problem with our country is me. And they were baptized for the forgiveness of sins so that when the king came, they would be ready. And along with all of those people, and Luke has described tax collectors and soldiers and masses of people coming, along with all those people, Jesus went down and was baptized. Now why did he do that? He's the sinless son of God. He has no sin of his own to repent of. Here is the critical thing about God's Son and what I think John the Baptist did not expect and what you and I can be so thankful for as we worship the Son is that God the Father is a Savior. God the Father says over and over again in the Old Testament, I am the Savior, there is none else, there is no one beside me. And when Jesus goes and identifies with sinners, and participates in John's baptism, he is identifying himself as the one who will save all of humanity. And that pleased the Father. The Father is a Savior, and so the Son, as his perfect representative, is a Savior. The timing of God the Father's announcement is not an accident. The Son of God is identifying with sinners. Jesus is saying... I am fully human and humanity needs repentance. So I am going to wash sinful humanity and lead them in new life. And that's what Jesus did through his life and through his death and through his resurrection and through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings that new life to each of us. Jesus had no sin, but he took our sin. And in his baptism, he is showing that we can have a new beginning. And don't miss this. God the Father is pleased that his son loves sinners. Sometimes we feel like God is angry, but God shows his pleasure when Jesus is showing sinful people that they can be forgiven. The heart of God is a savior. And to save us, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. He sent his son to be one of us. So I've spent the last couple of minutes talking about how Jesus is the son of God. Now, in order to save us, the son of God became the son of man. So remember our scripture reading this morning from Genesis chapter 3. When humanity falls into sin... God promises very clearly that through the seed of the woman, that is through her physical descendants, someone would come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil. Someone would undo the curse that resulted from Adam's sin. And so my second point this morning 
And if you're nervous, there are only two points this morning. My second point this morning is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now read with me verses 23 through 38. Scripture says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Semain, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleu, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, you may remember months ago when we were in Exodus, I said that every single time you read a list of names in the New Testament, someone is about to claim a promise. They are putting forward a resume that says, I am qualified to make this claim. But before I talk about that, I want to say a couple of things that, that may be helpful when you look at a list like this. First of all, I just spent probably 15 minutes talking about how Jesus is the unique son of God. And then at the end of this list, we read that Adam is called the son of God. There are a couple of things happening there. Number one, Adam is created. He is clearly created. That is what Genesis describes. Jesus is not created and never was. But number two, and this is, this is maybe significant, if you've ever looked at the New American Standard or the King James Bible, both those translations do something where, for the sake of a smooth English translation, good translators, it's not something bad, good translators will add words that are not part of the original because English and Greek and English and Hebrew are very different languages. So when a translator does that in a translation like the New American Standard or the King James, they'll put it in italics. So it just gives you, as a reader, a little bit of information that says, oh, this is to help me understand it, but it's actually not part of the original text. 
Well, if you look at this passage in Greek, actually the word son only occurs once in the entire passage. What this actually says is, it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. That's the only time it was there. And then after that, it says Joseph of Heli, of Mathat, of Levi, all the way down. And that does a couple of things. It allows for the possibility that there are multiple generations that are not listed. What Luke does here is he gives you 33 names approximately that are related but do not include everyone in the physical lineage between Jesus and Adam. The list would be enormously long if he had done that, and I am very thankful that he didn't. The reason he does this is a genealogy like this is a sort of a resume. You are giving enough information to verify that you can make a legal claim to something or you inherit a promise God made to one of your ancestors. You are not trying to give every single person listed. And that's why there are some small differences between the genealogy that Luke gives us and the genealogy that Matthew gives us. Luke is is answering the question, who is Joseph's father. And he traces it all the way back to Adam. That's not what Matthew is doing. Matthew is asking the question, who inherits the throne of David? And so the genealogies go in reverse order. They're addressing different things, and both of them are highlighting subtly different things because they are addressing subtly different but related issues. Luke is concerned to demonstrate that Joseph has a legal claim to the throne. That's why he does mention David. And he is also concerned to demonstrate that he inherits the promises of Abraham. They're both mentioned. But Matthew does not go all the way back to Adam because Matthew is not concerned with all of humanity. But Luke is. Luke wants to show that Jesus is the savior of the entire world. That's why Simeon in the temple talks about how he is appointed for the fall and rise of many. And he is a light to the Gentiles. He is not just a Hebrew Messiah, although he is that. He is also the savior for the entire world. And Luke wants to show that by tracing this this list of family members all the way back to where the world went wrong. Luke's main concern is that you would know that Jesus is the one who is going to crush the head of the devil. Paul builds on this theme with great clarity in Romans chapter 5. And if you want to study this more, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to give you a few verses. So Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death Through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he continues in verse 19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam disobeyed, but Jesus obeyed. Adam brought death, but Jesus brings life. And Paul says, The law came to increase the trespass because it helped people understand how they were sinners and so they felt guilty for the sin that they were committing. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His obedience matters for you. His obedience matters for me. He is the man that made it possible to be right with God. And Luke is going to show this and build on it in such clear terms. What, what happens to Adam and Eve almost immediately? They're tempted by Satan and they fail. Do you know the next thing that happens after the genealogy in Luke? Jesus is tempted by Satan. And he doesn't fail. And a lot of people look at that and they think, you know, oh, well, Jesus quoted scripture, so what I need to do when Satan tempts me, I need to quote scripture. That's, that's not a bad thing, but that's not Luke's point. It's too late for you and I. We already inherited death from Adam. I've already sinned. I've already messed up. Luke is not giving you a strategy to resist Satan. Luke is holding up your Savior and saying, this is your hero. He is saying, Jesus succeeded where all humanity failed. And so you can worship him. You can find peace and safety in what he's done. And then you're going to see later in Luke, Jesus starts healing people. And he starts casting out demons. He's showing that he has power over Satan. And then he helps Peter catch a boatload of fish. I can't, when we talk about that, that's going to be a couple of weeks away. That's one of the strangest miracles in all of Scripture. You can't go to the Old Testament and say the Messiah is going to be a great fisherman. What is he doing? Why, why does that even exist? You know what he's doing? Jesus is demonstrating dominion over God's creation. Why is Adam created? He's created to rule and reign as a caretaker under God, managing all of creation. So he names the animals. He manages the garden. What does Jesus do? Well, well, Peter's over here working under a curse, right? Because all of humanity is cursed so that when we work, you know, you know, we, we sow wheat and we reap weeds. When Jesus does something, it, it works. When Peter tries to fish, he comes up empty. And when Jesus says, cast the net on the other side, there are so many fish that the net breaks. He is the human that shows humanity what living at peace with the Father is like and should be like. And we're going to be seeing that again and again throughout the rest of the book. He is demonstrating his power over creation. That's why Jesus loves the title, the Son of Man. He is doing what God created man to do. So now as, as we close, what, what do you and I do with all of this information? I said at the beginning, my prayer is that you would worship the Lord Jesus as I say true things about who he is. And, and I hope that you are still doing that with me as we look at Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as the Son of Man. There are three things that I think we can take away from this. Number one, you can look to him to be saved. You can have complete confidence that the salvation that Jesus offers you is able to save you completely. We, we mentioned baptism in our catechism this morning. And the, the devotional that goes along with it, the, the writer talked a little bit about his own baptism. And he, he had a point that I think is absolutely worth repeating. He said that when Jesus goes under the water, he is, he is bearing all of the wrath for sinful humanity in a picture. He is foreshadowing what he's going to do on the cross. Water in scripture often shows judgment like it did in Noah's flood. And Jesus is going to take all of God's judgment for us. 
And yet when he comes up out of the water, having absorbed all of God's wrath, there is life after judgment. And God says, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Now, if you are in Jesus Christ, when you are baptized, you can say all of God's wrath for my sin was absorbed by Jesus Christ. And when you come up out of the water, you can understand that you are a son or a daughter of God. And in you, God is well pleased. Not because you're perfect, but because you're in Christ. And so you can have hope. So when you think of of your baptism, or when we baptize somebody here, recognize that when Jesus was baptized, he was showing people what was possible. That God can be well pleased in us because he is well pleased in Christ. So that leads me to the second thing today. First, look to him to be saved. But second, worship him. I hope you've been doing that during this message. When we sing songs to Christ, it is completely fitting to praise him and adore him as the son of God. In fact, you know how praiseworthy he is because of his humility and willingness to become the Son of Man. And I know that this this message was theologically heavy, but really all I did in preaching this was I read Scripture so that you could hear what the Bible says about Jesus. And I hope that your heart is moved to worship him through the reading of God's Word, through the understanding of what it says. There is no one else like Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. He is full of conviction and compassion. He is the friend of sinners. He will be your friend. So you can fall at his feet and worship him. Finally, be like him. Your job and my job is to tell people the good news. That that. Forgiveness is available because of what Jesus did for us. And we ought to tell all kinds of people. Everyone. Don't be judgmental if you see someone who hasn't showered or if you see someone who is an obvious drug addict or has problems with alcohol or who is immoral in any kind of way. Jesus went and was baptized with sinners. Jesus' reputation suffered because he loved sinners. And if you are so concerned about your reputation that you don't tell people the good news of Jesus, you are not being like your Savior. Be like your Savior. Tell people the good news. Associate with sinners and those who have a bad reputation and give them hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we have looked at your word. Scripture promises that you will look to those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts so that we tremble at it now. May our praise be sweet to you. And in Jesus' name, amen.